Let's have a look at our reading, and uh, then we're going to have a look at it together. So uh, if you turn with me to 1 Peter, uh, that's tall, almost right at the back um, of uh, your Bibles there in the pews, and it's on page 1,218, 1,218, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10. This is a letter written uh, by Peter to uh, the, one of the uh, earliest groups of Christians very soon after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, he's speaking to them about belonging to God, um, about uh, being uh, uh, those who've received God's living hope. And he says to them this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're um, continuing this term with uh, this series thinking about identity and not just generally the question of identity, but in, in particular, what does it mean for who I am um, if I'm a follower of Jesus, if I belong to God's family? And uh, uh, my suggestion is that what we find in these couple of sentences from Peter in this letter that he wrote is Peter's answer to that question. And it involves some language, some imagery maybe that's unfamiliar to us about being a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, but it's language that's incredibly powerful, incredibly rich, and I think incredibly helpful for helping us to answer the question of identity. What does it mean to be in God's family? Let's start in a rather different place, a rather less obvious place. There are some things that you find, some gadgets that you find around the place, which are pretty obvious um, for, in terms of their usage. Have a look at this one. It's one I found online the other day. I would like to own one of these. Okay, so if you ask the question, what's it for? The answer is, it's for Richard's coffee and biscuits. Um, clearly, if you're going to eat chocolate biscuits, you want to make sure the chocolate is facing outwards. Yeah, I've thought this through already. Um, I would need several pockets, because I can go through several um, digestives, even with a fairly small cup of tea. I think it's a very big version of that. Anyway, so that's fairly obvious uh, what this is for. This one is slightly less obvious, this next one. You have to look a bit carefully. No, they're not gluing their toast. Um, this is apparently a genuine thing uh, you can buy. Uh, it's butter in the form of a print stick. So if you want to butter your toast, you simply... And you... Yeah, I think that's awesome. Yeah, okay, moving on. Um, and uh, this one is also, I, I suspect... There you go, Emma. You just have to dress in one of those. Now, that's one of those gadgets that I just think, why the heck didn't I think of that at the time? I've now got a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I don't think either of them would do this one. I do have a puppy, though. Do you think... No. Um... So sometimes gadgets that you find are really obvious and you know the answer to the question, what's it for? This next one, not so much. This is a real invention. It does exist. Anybody take a guess as to what this might be for? This is not a rhetorical question. Take a guess. What do you know? You're absolutely right. And somebody got it first time in the first service as well, which I'm very... It is to stop people stealing your lunch. Have a look at the next slide. This is what the sandwich actually looks like. It's simply a sandwich bag printed with what's meant to look like mold. I can see you're all going to go out and buy one. I should have had some here to sell, sell on commission. 
And it's a somewhat less obvious one, but when you know what it's for, it all makes sense. The question, what's it for, is actually a really good way of simply restating uh, the identity question. What am I for? What are we for? If you're Richard Dawkins, the, the celebrated scientist and proponent of an atheistic worldview, the, the answer to the question, what am I for, is very simple, very obvious, and very plain. You simply exist in order to perpetuate your genes, G-E-N-E-S. Simply pass them on to the next generation. That's what you are for. It's very simple, very obvious, very clear. Perhaps for the rest of us, it feels a little bit less clear. What are we for? What are we here for? What are we here to achieve? Now, we have to know that for two reasons. One is simply to help make some good choices as we go along, but also because as we look back on portions of our lives, whether it's simply looking back on a day, a week, a month, maybe a decade, maybe you hit a particular birthday and you're looking back on your life so far, asking the question, am I getting it right? If I'm here for something, the question is, am I fulfilling it? Is my life doing what it's meant to be for? And I want to suggest that these couple of sentences in Peter's letter give us a very simple but profoundly rich answer to the question of what are we here for? And he says this. He says in these images that he uses that we are here for God and for others. We are here for God and for others. Now, that may not seem terribly obvious from these words that I've read out, but actually it's what's at the heart of the images he uses. The clue is in verse 10. He says this very odd thing, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. What can it mean to be not a people? Well, many of those that he was writing to were followers of Jesus who were uh, Jewish there were people who would have identified as being part of the God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. They knew what it was to be a people, but they also knew what it was to be not a people, or at least teetering on the brink of not being people. The place that this would have taken them back to would have been Egypt. Some 1,500 or so years before Peter wrote, they were slaves under the tyrannical regime of the Egyptian pharaoh. It was very simple in many ways, their lifestyle. The answer to the question, what are you here for, was straightforward. We're here to make bricks. That's what they did. They made bricks in the baking Egyptian sun from straw and mud. They were there simply to survive. They got given food to eat, water to drink. They made bricks. That was what they were. That was what they were there for. The problem was they were gradually being wiped out. Their existence as a nation, as a people, as the descendants of Abraham and his descendants was in danger of teetering on the brink. And so God sends, this is the story of uh, Exodus onwards in the Bible, God sends Moses, the rescuer. And Moses comes and he leads these people out of Egypt, rescues them from being slaves through the Red Sea as the sea parts Pharaoh's um, army are destroyed and into the wilderness. And then a very odd thing happens. Uh, keep your finger on 1 Peter 2, if you would, and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 16 initially. Top, top left-hand corner of page 74. This is the, 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 the chunk of the Bible that Peter was referring to. This is the chunk of the Bible that immediately those who read the letter first or heard the letter first would have thought of. So we have to go there too. It'll make much more sense. 
Top left-hand corner, page 74, it says, in the desert, now bear in mind, they've just been rescued from slavery, okay? You'd expect the obvious response would have been, thank you, we're free. Actually, the response is, it's pretty miserable in the wilderness, and it was simpler back there. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out of this desert to starve this entire assembly to dead. To death. Miserable bunch. They were slaves. They've been rescued. But the problem is, life was simpler back then. They knew who they were. They were slaves. There was no question of what they were meant to be doing. They had food then. There was none of this business of having to rely on God to give them manna or to give them the quail in the wilderness. They had water then, maybe not very much of it, but they didn't have to wait for Moses to strike the rock with his staff and bring water out. They preferred the simplicity of knowing who they were and what they were to do from the adventure of walking with God. They preferred the simplicity of being slaves and being in the process of being wiped out to this gift God had given them of freedom. And it's in that context that Moses speaks to them the words that then Peter quotes from. Turn over one page, if you would, to page 77. This is the last of our paper chase around the Bible. It's okay. Page 77, verse 3 at the top of that page in chapter 19. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for, for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter is writing to these Christians in the first century and saying to them, you're part of this people too. You are part of this kingdom of priests. You are part of this holy nation. And that means that you are to be for God and for the people. How do we know? Well, that was the job of a priest. If you were a priest, the best way of understanding your job description in the Old Testament was that the priest had to face two ways at once. A priest had to face two ways at once. They faced towards God on behalf of the people and towards the people on behalf of God. That was the definition of what a priest was to do. They were to be, firstly, for God. If you were a priest, you worked in the temple, and before that in the tabernacle, you brought the worship of the people on their behalf to God. You faced God in prayer, in worship, in bringing sacrifices, in working in the temple, you were there for God. There was that sense in which they did on behalf of the people, what the people were meant to be doing themselves, of facing God and saying, the whole of my life is for you. I've been made for you. I want to relate towards you. Life is about you. And actually, they were meant to represent in their working lives in the temple, what the whole of life was meant to be about. It, it's pictured there for us in the beautiful theological poetry of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the creation stories. And there you see that Adam and Eve were meant to be facing God, that the whole of their lives were meant to be for him. If we're to be a kingdom of priests, the first half of what we need to hear is that we're meant to be living life for God. Now, maybe that sounds absolutely obvious, 
But it's not just about Sundays. Now, clearly, when we pray, when we worship, when we sing songs, when we come for communion, whatever it is, we're, if you like, metaphorically facing towards God. But the priestly life of every believer is actually worked out in our Monday through Saturday lives, not simply in our Sunday moments in church. We're to be for God in the whole attitude of the whole of what we do. That's why we're a kingdom of priests, even though we don't all work in churches. The point is that what I do in a church is just one aspect of what we all do in the whole of our lives. Living for God. What does that look like? Well, practically speaking, it has to do, I suspect, as much as anything else, with our motives, our intentions, our aims in life. You know, in your working life, is your greatest aim career progression, ambition, success, money, power? Or is your greatest aim for the glory of God? Is life for God or for yourself? Or in your friendships? Or in your parenting? Or in your community? Whatever it is that you do most in your Monday through Saturday lives, what is the focus of your heart, of my heart? Am I living for God? Do you remember when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What he says is this, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. The priestly life, just like the priests in the Old Testament, is to face two ways. We're to be for God and we are to be for our neighbors. The priests were not simply there to, to lead worship, they actually then spoke on God's behalf to the people. They would instruct them in the Torah, the law. They would tell them the deeds of God. They would pass on the stories of God. They would teach people about him. They would also act before the days of the kings of Israel. Some of them acted as judges, leaders of the people, to bring order and shape to society on God's behalf. They faced two ways. They lived for God and they lived for others. We're to love God, we're to love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor actually takes on every possible form, doesn't it? It takes on the form of what we're doing through All Souls Ivorybridge as we serve the needs of our neighbours. But it also takes shape in the way that we treat our work colleagues, the way that we are parenting, the way that we treat our friends, the way that we might choose with a neighbour not to have a beef with them but to forgive them. It might be the way that we choose not to pass on gossip because we care about those that it might affect. It affects the way that we use social media, the way that we spend our money, the way that we um, deal with our temper. Being for God and for others is the shape of that priestly identity. We're a kingdom of priests. Um, two weeks ago, our family uh, uh, expanded just a little. Um, this is uh, Rolo. I had to find a reason to get him into my sermon. Um, and uh, Rolo is now, this is not when he was nine weeks old, Rolo is now ten weeks old. Uh, he's a little uh, chocolate brown, hence being called Rolo. Um, uh, a sprudel, cross between a spring, a spaniel, and a poodle. Um, he's quite little at the moment and won't get huge, which is good news. Um, and um, about a day or two after we brought him home, when he was just eight weeks old, it seemed to me, although he may well have known it beforehand, but it seemed to me that there was a moment where he suddenly discovered something that was clear to everybody else. 
he suddenly discovered that he had a tail. Now, when he discovered that he had a tail, you can imagine what he did at that point. He chased it round and round in circles, barking, growling, snarling, snapping, round and round and round. I'd love to say every decreasing circles, but it's so small, you couldn't get much smaller than that. Not quite catching it at any moment. And when he caught it, he fell over. It was highly entertaining. Here's the thing, of course. Uh, it wasn't a very productive use of his energy, but it probably felt to him like it was. Right at that moment, that was the only thing he could think of. He was so engrossed in catching his tail that actually even offering him food didn't work. His tastiest treat didn't work. It didn't bring him out of that loop zooming round and round and round, trying to catch his tail. He was absolutely focused inwards. It wouldn't have helped him very much if he was in danger. It wouldn't have helped him very much if he was hungry. It didn't help him very much that he was tired. Actually, everything was about chasing his tail. I reckon we spend an awful lot of our lives chasing our tails. It's pretty much the definition of sin, as far as the Bible's concerned. That when our lives become about us, about me, about my life, about what I'm to do, about my needs. I'm actually doing not much more than what Rolo does, chasing his tail. I simply go around in circles. I can expend an awful lot of energy. I can genuinely feel like I'm making a lot of progress. And you certainly, if he had a pedometer, he was doing a lot of steps. He could lie down in a sort of, as he did afterwards, in a big heap of sort of tiredness. But had he achieved anything? Had he done anything? Had he eaten? Had he slept? Had he drunk? Had he played with anybody else? Absolutely not. Sin absorbs our time and energy because it's fundamentally sin is simply putting me at the center of the universe. I always say this thing, sin is this little word with I at the middle of it. It simply reminds us that sin fundamentally is not a list of things we shouldn't do. It's an attitude of heart that says I'm number one. I'm at the center of my universe. I'm simply going to chase my tail through life. And you can make a lot of noise doing that. You can feel you're making a lot of progress. But it's not what we're for. What are we for? Well, we're a kingdom of priests. That means we're for God and we're for our neighbor. And here's the remarkable thing. My testimony is, the testimony of God's people down through many, many centuries, the promise of the Bible is that as we choose to live life for God and for others, what we discover is that God is for us. That we don't have to chase our own tails, we don't have to chase our own needs, because God loves us so much that he gives everything for us. As we put him and others first, actually we discover that we don't have to worry about us, because God does. We don't have to put ourselves first, because God does. That's why Jesus came. Jesus, who is called the great high priest, the one who lived the perfect life of obedience for God, his heavenly Father, and for you and me. The one whose fourness for you and me went even so far as to be the sacrifice himself, to give himself on the cross. Which means we don't have to be priests working in a temple anymore, which means we don't have to sacrifice lambs and bulls and oxen and, and goats. Actually, the sacrifice has been done. Jesus has given everything for us. Now we give our lives for him, and for one another. My simple question, my challenge for me, for you this week, is how can we spend less of our lives chasing our tails, living life for me, living life for you? How can we find the freedom 
Because that's a sort of slavery, isn't it, going around in circles? How can we find the freedom of living life for God and for our neighbor? Now, I don't know. It might be the tiny little bit of that might be that you choose to give to All Souls Argy Bridge. It might be something very different. It might be choosing to be for somebody in your workplace this week that otherwise you'd be for yourself. It might be choosing to give some time in volunteering or a little bit more time and effort in parenting, whatever it is, but we choose to be for God and for others. Let's pray as we come to worship. Jesus, thank you that as the great high priest, you live that perfect life for God, your heavenly Father, and for us. Thank you that you gave everything Thank you that you made the perfect sacrifice. And thank you that you freed us from slavery to self, from simply chasing our own tails, so that we could serve you and serve the people that you've made. Make us generous with our lives this week. Help us to find the freedom and satisfaction of discovering what it is we are truly for. In Jesus' name. Amen.